So much has happened the last two weeks. I have been mulling over uh, events, uh, especially with with the feast itself, and then, of course, uh, you know all the meaning of, of the fall holy day season, the, the four holy days, what they picture, the actual being there and, and keeping God's feast over a seven-day period. Uh, just wonderful, wonderful opportunity, and just cementing in our minds every year what what this what this is all about and it's it's such a blessing to have that and and yet here we were on the last great day as as we we get up that morning uh, to to go to services and we find out about the attack on Israel um, 5000 5000 missiles launched at Israel in, in all that has ensued after that, the death and the suffering, the way the various nations right now are positioning themselves and trying to figure out uh, how to handle this situation. I, I've been thinking about those things. I've been thinking as well about, as, as we read in the announcements and then with others who are, are going through some incredible suffering right now in, in the church and processing all of these events, uh, being aware again as uh, of the tumultuous and, and seemingly overwhelming situations that some of the brethren are experiencing, I became aware of of a situation here just over the weekend uh, that's not been announced yet of an individual that's uh, dealing with a life threatening illness that could could be uh, again uh, well that that is right now for the family they're they're rocked by that uh, but thinking about all of that uh, and thinking about just how much the whole world right now is in a, in a state of flux. You know, we come back to the concept that we know, brethren, we know this well. We know that Satan, the adversary, the, the rebel uh, against God, he thrives amidst confusion. He seeks to disrupt, and he is disrupting. He seeks to divide, and he seeks to conquer. And he's doing that now. He and his realm are bent. They are bent. They're warped. Uh, spiritually. They're warped in their minds. He hates humanity, and he's fixated on mankind's destruction. Above all, uh, we, uh, as God's people, we know where our battle lies. Our battle is not with these other countries. Our battle is not with our neighbors. Our battle lies with spiritual wickedness, wicked spirits in high places. That's the battle in which we're engaging against this being that we, which we eagerly await his being, uh, along with his minions, being bound prior to the millennium and then the millennium beginning. Uh, we know ultimately that they're, they're going to be defeated as they're released for a little season and, and to do their, their work even after the millennium. What will that be like to see them at, uh, thrown, uh, thrown into the abyss before the millennium starts? What will that be like to see those beings cast into the lake of fire, as Revelation tells us, and to know that, that these beings will no longer torment and twist and influence humanity for eternity? What, what, will, that, what will that be like? That's, that's a reality that we have celebrated. We've, we finished celebrating in the midst of all this confusion that's going on in the world around us. We just got through celebrating that. In the course of reflecting on these principles, I also came across a passage of scripture this feast that, that I, I, I found intriguing. I think our, our Bible students here, many of you are very aware of this story. Uh, I did not hear it discussed at the feast in, 
in New Braunfels. Maybe you did in, in the location where you were, but I'm going to get to that story here in just a little bit. I think it's, it's a story that I believe provides a unique context for God's people today. Uh, God's people who have been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The world is trying to sort this out. Christianity is trying to sort out what's going on right now. And in most times, Christianity views things from their own country, where they are and what our nation should be doing. What about, what about us? What about you and me, folks who are citizens of a, of a heavenly kingdom, folks that are eagerly awaiting that, that king to return as, as is typified uh, through the Feast of Trumpets? The title of today's message is, Of All Times, Why Buy a Field Now? Of all the times uh, uh, that, that we could have, why is now the time to buy a field some of you know exactly uh, what I'm discussing. Some of you may not. Like I said, we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later in the message. Is now the time to buy a field? Yes. Uh, by the way, yes, it is. We'll, we'll talk about that. Let's talk about the last two weeks first. When we think about the, the meaning of the feast and, and all of that, uh, and, and all that it, it, it typifies, I always walk away uh, from from the feast experience, just thinking, "Wow, God, God has given us this understanding. He's He's given us this this map, this blueprint of how things are supposed to happen and how things will happen. We don't have all the details. We can't fill in all the details. When the details happen, we'll say, "Oh, this is what He meant." But He gives us the picture, and 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 through that, it gives us great peace. Hamas attacked Israel on the eighth day with 5,000 missiles, as we said, 1,300 uh, as of yesterday, at least from the reports that, that I saw, 1,300 in Israel dead, 1,300. And uh, initially it was in the hundreds uh, with, with Gaza, but as Israel has retaliated, now we're, we're looking at, uh, as of yesterday, 1,900, 1,900 dead in Gaza. Just a horrific situation, uh, and and many of you, and we've got children here, so I won't go into the details of that, but many of you have, have seen and read reports of, of the, the horrifying nature of war and of what's happening to women and children and, and devastating pictures of that. It, it's a horrible situation. You know, sometimes I, th- I think uh, uh, every now and then we'll hear uh, someone growing up in the church who, who is thinking, you know what, maybe I should get in the military. Maybe I should go into the military and just kind of learn some discipline uh, and, and, and kind of get my life started straight and to where I can get focused and, and I'll learn some lessons about how to be more, uh, you know, may, may, maybe just more in control of my life. And 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 yet I, I, I look at what goes on in war and what that is to to be trained to kill and, and to go through that. And here we are as, as Christians, here we are as representatives of God uh, and to and to even think of, I, I think sometimes there is a lack of realization of, of what it is to be trained to kill and, and to go into a situation like that having to kill and the impact of it. Anyway, I, that's an aside, but think, think, think about right now the, the, the way in which the varying nations 
are positioning themselves. Let's, let's just, just look at a few of the countries. This, this isn't any, uh, great, uh, great insight. It's pretty much common knowledge. But you've got, you've got Lebanon, Lebanon to the north. Lebanon, uh, houses Hezbollah. Hezbollah is very much, uh, connected with and supporting the role of Hamas. Uh, Hezbollah has said, if, if we, if, we may need to get into a situation and we are willing and eager to join that fight for their cause because, uh, as, as they have said and as many surrounding nations have said, they say that, that Hamas has basically lived in an open air prison for years and years and years. And as we see uprisings here in the United States, I say uprisings, protests, protests at different, different places in, in different countries saying, you know, supporting the cause of Hamas because of, of, of the way in which they have been oppressed all these years. Uh, so you've got that going. You've got, uh, you've got Israel as, as they are. Can you, can, can you imagine, can you imagine that small little country, can you be, imagine being attacked by 5,000 missiles uh, and then having people captured, killed, murdered, people, people taken in as hostages? And, and what what would what would their response be? What would be the natural human response for the United States of America if we were attacked by a nation on our own soil, and and that nation or those people are right there, right there in our proximity? What 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 would what would what would the nation's response be? What would people expect to happen as a result of that? You've got Egypt. Egypt is wanting to provide humanitarian assistance. Uh, Israel set up the blockade. Uh, they're trying to get um, uh, humanitarian assistance, uh, humanitarian aid to the Palestinian people, the the uh, the civilians, the the women, the children, those who are not involved in the in the battle that can't get water, they can't get food, they can't get medical treatment. They're injured. They're they're dying. And, and they're, they're trying to get that, that aid in there. Jordan is in a difficult spot. Jordan has been friendly with, with Israel. Jordan has quite a few Palestinians that live there. They've had some protests there. How is Jordan going to manage that? How is Jordan going to manage that with the rest of the Arab world and the way the Arab world feels about this? What about Qatar? Qatar has been the, the broker of a lot of these hostage deals and, and Qatar has, has outright said that it's Israel's Response: Israel is to blame for this because they have escalated the situation. It could have been it could have been handled, managed uh, if they had not escalated the situation. But they they go in with all this force and they're and and they're completely out of control in this tirade, rage, destroying human life, uh, and it's Israel's fault. Uh, Iran, well, they happen to be just a little bit involved. <laughs> Iran has supported the Hamas uh, cause uh, for many years. Turkey, Turkey, a NATO member. Uh, Turkey is a NATO member. We're a part of NATO. NATO is this the defense alliance, the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization. They're part of that. Turkey, President Erdogan, uh, has has recognized Hamas as a legitimate uh as a legitimate government, and he's saying that it's it's Israel's fault for escalating the situation and for for to some degree creating the situation for for Hamas uh, to uh, implement the things that they did to because they they had to do something. It's all Israel's fault for the escalation. It's 
it's not a good situation, brethren. Uh, then you've got these, these big uh, lurking giants like, like Russia. Russia's eager to see the, the, the f- eyes of focus here in, in that area of the world. So maybe everybody else will take their eyes off what's going on in, in Ukraine. China. China is, is gaining more and more power in the Middle East with the purchases that, that they've made, uh, and, uh, of land and, and influence in governments and supporting governments. And China's interests are not America's interests. Their allies are not our allies. China wants to be the supreme world power. They need oil. America wants oil. We need oil. That's what drives uh, the economy. Uh, so all of these things are, are happening. And it's interesting, you listen to the various experts talk about what, what needs to be done here. What, what should we do as America? What should, we, what should this country do? What should this country do? So all this discussion about, yeah, America needs to step in and do this. No, America needs to, to stay out of this. No, America needs to do this. America's brought, uh, what was it, a, an aircraft carrier or a ship there to the eastern Mediterranean, which has really, really upset a lot of the Arab nations in, in seeing all of that. What, how is this going, going to play out? Uh, different governments have already issued statements. If America sends this, uh, you know, uh, enters the fray, at least through missiles or anything, it's going to be a problem. Uh, so I, it was interesting listening to a fellow, it was a colonel on, on a talk radio show. They had interviewed this colonel who had been uh, intricately involved in, in Middle East operations for years. But it was interesting hearing the person interviewing him say, what, what, what should America do? What, what should America's role be? And hearing him uh, say what he said uh, made me pause for a second. He said, you know, for America to just come in and say, we're going to support Israel and bomb, you know, bomb Hamas or, or do this. He said that would create a ripple effect that could trigger World War III. Uh, everybody, it's such a tinderbox there and everybody is so connected and everything is so fragile. Even say Saudi Arabia, who has, uh, who, who was engaging in talks with Israel to try to kind of create some, some, some camaraderie there. Uh, President Biden was brokering uh, that in his administrative team, but that even that has completely uh, gone off the table right now with everything that's going on. But but he said that you know some people think you know we should just go in there and just you know take them out, take out Hamas. They they want to annihilate the Jews. They will not stop until they can annihilate all the Jews and get them out. So we need to just take them out. He said. That's not the way to do it. Uh, the, the way the way to do it is is to put it in the hands of the diplomats. He said, "What you've got to do is look at all of these different countries, and this is this is all about diplomacy. These countries, and find out, you know, what does what does Qatar want? What does Saudi Arabia want? What does Jordan want? What what is in the best interest of Egypt? What about Turkey?" And, and the diplomats begin to work and, and find what their needs are that will satisfy them and, and strive to please all of them and create a workable solution. It's very fragile, but, but, but to come in there with force, uh, is going to cause things to go down a path from which the world will not be able to return. I just thought, I thought that was interesting. I thought that was interesting. I, 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 I also thought about 
the, the prophecy in Hosea, we won't turn there, but remember where uh, Hosea talks about uh, Israel and their uh, Israel going after its lovers, sees the other, the other nations, support of the nations. And, and he actually says how Israel, uh, Israel prostitutes itself with these other nations to try to keep everything in place and, and favors. But he said, he, Israel, uh, in, in Hosea, he said, but it's different than the typical prostitute. The prostitute receives money <laughs> for her services, but, but Israel pays to get the influence of of its uh, of its suitors, so to speak, and, and you think about the, what a what a complex world in which we live. Uh, we we think about the the concept of uh, what's that what's that phrase where it's uh, your enemy's enemy is my friend, and we're, we're we're in that we're in that mode as we go forward. So in thinking about that, uh, again, in, in reflecting on the citizens of a, of a heavenly kingdom of which you and I are a part, as, as how should we process all of the, these events that are going on right now in the world around us? Well, this, this brings us to a passage in, in the book of Jeremiah, which we'll turn here uh, in, in just a little bit. I found it interesting in looking at uh, these uh, these prophets, these two major prophets, as well as one who's listed as one of the writings, uh, the background that's going on, uh, and, and some of the peculiarities of these these prophecies. What are we talking about? Uh, in in the 580s BC, uh, in the mid 580s BC, when Jerusalem fell, uh, prior to that, there were several deportations to Babylon. And, and you've got these three prophets. One is, is in the writings, the, the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel uh, lived during that time. Of course, Daniel lived on down into the time of, of, of the Persian Empire, defeating uh, the Babylonian Empire. But So Daniel's around. And it's, it's interesting that Ezekiel references Daniel at some point. Where was Ezekiel during this time? Well, Ezekiel had been one of the ones who had been taken previous to the, the fall of Jerusalem in 586. He had been taken in one of the earlier captivities. So Ezekiel was prophesying, what is it, by the river Kibar in Babylon. So he's there prophesying. And then you've got Jeremiah. Uh, and Jeremiah is prophesying in Jerusalem. He's there in the midst of everything. And, and at some point, of course, Jerusalem is besieged by, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar's army. So he's prophesying there. Uh, what what uh, several have noted is that while Ezekiel references Daniel, I think he makes a statement. It's Ezekiel fourteen fourteen. I think it is. Uh, yeah, Ezekiel fourteen fourteen. He makes a statement about uh, Job. I think Job, Noah, and Daniel. Uh, it's interesting that Jeremiah never references Ezekiel, and Ezekiel doesn't reference Jeremiah. And people would think, well, okay, well, yeah, one's over here and one's over here. But letters were going back and forth, and and there's evidence of letters going back and forth. Why is it that these two two prophets uh, are not not in communication and that they're not referencing one another? Anybody ever thought about that? Well, I 
I, I thought it was uh, interesting as I uh, began to, to look into it. And biblical scholars have made some interesting statements about, about this. Uh, one such is uh, Dalit Ram Shiloni. He's a senior lecturer of Hebrew Bible, the Department of, of Hebrew Culture, Culture Studies at Tel Aviv University. I'm going to quote a, a few things uh, from him today. But they, uh, while, while they cite possible reasons about the similarities of, of Ezekiel and Jeremiah's prophecies, they, they also, also note what they say are a controversy between the two, that, that the prophecies differ between Ezekiel and, and, and Jeremiah. I'll quote this. We don't believe that, by the way, but, but I, I'll quote this because I, I, I want to, to, in a sense, draw a parallel today of the, even what biblical scholars do not grasp and understand that you and I, the weak of the world, uh, see very clearly. The world, the, the great minds uh, of today as they're trying to sort through everything that's going on and determine the best course of action in, in, in all these nations, uh, they're doing that. And then we, we have biblical scholars that, that see these prophecies that were taking place in, in an incredibly complex and challenging time in Israel and in, in the captivity in Babylon. Uh, and yet here we are as God's people, the weak of the world, that God has given us clarity on this. We've just come from a time, uh, from, from a season picturing a time that gives us great clarity. So let's let's look at that. Here's what uh, this person quotes in his in his study. The examples to an implicit disagreement between the prophets are part of a much broader deliberation that reveals itself in the two prophetic books in reference to the fates of the two Judean communities during the early decades of the 6th century. So he's talking about 590s, 580s BC, the two Judean communities. You've got the one major Judean community that is in Jerusalem uh, there, and then you've got these others that have been have been exiled to Babylon. So these two communities. Uh, continuing. Uh, Conflicts over issues of group identity appear after 597 B.C., that was one of the deportation times, uh, as mutual hostility kindles between Jerusalem and its inhabitants on the one hand and the Jehoiachin exiles on the other. And, and there was some hostility. We'll, we'll see that as we read this, this in a bit between the two. I'm not saying between Ezekiel and, and, uh, Jeremiah, but between these, these two, uh, populations. He, so they, they talk about this possible conflict here. Uh, this polemic or this, uh, when it's polemic, this, this major controversy that's, uh, erupted, uh, involves contradictory predictions involves contradictory predictions of the fortunes of the last two Davidic kings, Jehoiachin and Zedekiah. So, and they cite a couple of passages, which we'll cover in just a second. So Jehoiachin was deported to Babylon. So he's there, a king in Babylon. He's made low, uh, while, while there, while many of the exiles are there. And yet you've got Zedekiah that is continuing to rule in Jerusalem. Uh, while they're uh, defying uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So they, they mention some of these uh, statements, and then they make this statement. Uh, and opposing opposing definitions of the remnant of the Judean people. So 
most scholars, well, I'd say many scholars look at this situation and they see that and they believe that Jeremiah has a completely different view of what the remnant is uh, than, than Ezekiel. Uh, is there a conflict there? Is there a conflict there? Continuing, major conceptions and traditions are drawn into a theological deliberation over conceptions of covenant, land, and exile, and the profound differences between Ezekiel and Jeremiah in the use of these traditions traditions cannot be overlooked. Uh, breaking into the thought, continuing, uh, agree, agreements in theme and ideology, as well as verbal similarities, may first be referred to the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah in the early decades of the 6th century. The significant issue that remains under debate, though, is the struggle of who should be considered to be the true people of God. It seems that their disparate, location, disparate locations in two different places, uh, Jeremiah in Jerusalem, Mitzvah, and finally in Egypt, and Ezekiel in Babylon, signal much more than geographical distance separating them. And then he goes on to state the possibilities of, of why there is this difference in what they consider to be the remnant and how, how they prophesy. Uh, one, one thought that he puts uh, is... To explain the silence may be based on their mutual great respect. Ezekiel, whether exposed to Jeremiah in person or through his writings, found himself in the subsequent years of exile holding to substantially different positions than his highly esteemed predecessor. Is that the case? Did they have different positions? His implicit polemics against Jeremiah were well hidden, but the two proclaimed clearly opposite messages. Hence, it seems indeed that this silence between the prophets should be perceived as a highly eloquent one. Were there completely opposite messages? And this, this comes back again to the, the wonderful, wonderful blessing that God has, has given his people, his church, about the truths of these millennial, uh, and in time and millennial prophecies. Let's, let's dig in. Uh, so let's, let's go first to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 is a, a passage we've, uh, we've seen off quoted here recently in the churches as we're in the, the stage that, that we are now in, in, uh, eagerly awaiting Christ's return, but the, the church still needs to do what the church needs to do to preach the gospel, to care for the flock, and uh, and make determinations about how to plan, even though we eagerly await and, and yearn for the soon coming return of Jesus Christ. Let's, uh, let's look here in Jeremiah 29 as we start uh, jumping into this. That was a long introduction, Burnett. Um, anyway, I needed to set the stage. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 1. So notice what's happening here. Verse 1, now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem with those that are, have not been taken captive yet, but, but that they are, they are or, or about to be, uh, yeah, they are, uh, in, in the process of being under siege here. But anyway, this, that the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive to the priests, uh, they were carried away captive. This is the one that he sent to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. So there had been this earlier 
earlier deportation when they took quite a few to Babylon. So he, he, he's in Jerusalem. He's writing this letter to the captives that are there. What, what does he say? Well, he references as well. This happened after Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, uh, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. So it was it said it was sent by uh, the hand, and uh, in, in mis, mis, uh, mentions these different people. And we come to the statement, verse 4. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I caused, God says, whom I caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he makes the statement, as as we've, we've heard referenced um, several times here in the last year or two. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Uh, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. This has happened. I caused it because of, because of your sins. Uh, but you're here now. And uh, make the best of the difficult situation, he's, he's saying, in essence. For uh, he says, and pray, verse 7, uh, oh, and seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the eternal for it. For in its peace you will have peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which which." You cause to be dream, for they prophesy falsely. There were some that were saying, uh, you know, this, you're going to, you're going to get to go back right away. Nebuchadnezzar's army is going to be overthrown. You're going to be back home in two years or other, other places where I think that was one of the Jerusalem prophets that had prophesied that. I may have that backwards, but, but that was one of the, the prophecies. He says that, don't, don't listen to, to that. For, for verse nine, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I, I have not sent them, says the eternal. Verse 10, for thus says the eternal, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and, and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Seventy years, basically, uh, from the time of, of, of when the captivity, the final captivity, 586-ish, when, when Ju- uh, Jerusalem was, was finally taken over. So he's saying, you know, basically around 515, 516 BC, 70 years later, you're going to be able, you, you people who are over there in Babylon, you're going to be able to come back. I'm going to, I'm going to let you come back. Look at verse 15. Uh, but but what he's writing to them, uh, to those who are there in Babylon, he's, he's warning them here. Because you have said the eternal has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, concerning all the people who dwell in this city, speaking of, of those still in Jerusalem and the king that is there, uh, and concerning your brethren who have not gone out with you into captivity. So he's referencing the Jerusalem, the folks in Jerusalem here. Thus says the Lord host, I'm going to send on them sword, famine, pestilence will make them like rotten figs. So, so that cannot be eaten. They're so bad. I'll pursue them with the sword, with famine and with pestilence, and I will deliver them to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth to be a curse and astonishment, a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I've driven them. 
It's not going to go well for those in Jerusalem, uh, is what Jeremiah is telling them. Uh, and, and for that king, King Zedekiah, who is there. Why? Because they have not heeded, verse 19, my word, says the Eternal, which I sent to them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them. Neither would you heed, neither would you heed, says the Eternal. Therefore, hear the word of, of the Lord, all you of the captivity. He's saying, hear the word of the Lord, all you who are there in Babylon. Uh, I have sent, uh, whom I have sent from, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, concerning, and then he goes uh, and, and starts listing uh, various individuals uh, as well uh, about, about their fate. And let's come down to verse 24. There were a couple of individual, uh, one individual here, uh, specifically Shemaiah the Nehalamite, uh, and he says, speak to this person. These are uh, usurpers who are speaking against Jeremiah's true prophecies. Thus speaks the eternal of hosts, uh, the God of Israel, saying, you've sent letters in your name to all the people who are at Jerusalem, to Zephaniah, the, the, the son of uh, Messiah, the priest, and saying, the Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada, the priest, so that there should be officers in the house of the Lord over every man who's demented and considers himself a prophet, that you should put him in prison and in the stocks. Now, therefore, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah uh, of Anathoth, who makes himself a prophet to you? For he sent to us in Babylon, saying, This captivity is long. Build houses to dwell in them and plant gardens and eat their fruit. And then uh, verse 30, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Send this to all those in captivity, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaliah the Nehalemite, ne- ne- uh, because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, and I have not sent him, and has caused you to trust in a lie. Therefore, says the Eternal, behold, I will punish him and his family, uh, so that they'll not have anyone to dwell among his people. Jeremiah is saying, this is going to happen, uh, and God is confirming that, uh, that this would happen. So we see that going on on the one hand. Now let's, let's go to Ezekiel and, and read from Ezekiel's words and his prophecies. Let's go to Ezekiel 11. As we know, he's, he's there at the, in the Babylonian captivity, uh, and, and he's prophesying, uh, to them. Is, is his prophecy in contradiction to, to Jeremiah? We see here in this passage as we start, uh, those of Jerusalem are not too happy. They're speaking very disdainfully of those who have gone into captivity. Hey, we're still in this fight. We're still here in Jerusalem. We're still holding our ground. We're still doing what God is wanting, and you have no part with us. Look at what they say. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 11. Again, the word of the Eternal came to me saying, Son of man... Your, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety uh, are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said. And then he says, this is what the inhabitants of Jerusalem are saying to all those who have been scattered that are in captivity, including the ones that are right here uh, in, in Babylon. 
This is what the inhabitants of Jerusalem are saying to them. Get far away from the eternal. This land has been given to us as a possession. Therefore, uh, thus says the Lord God, verse 16, although I've cast in, in this, these dispersions, in, in these situations of captivity, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I've scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary uh, for them in the countries where they've gone. Therefore, says the, the Lord God, I'll gather you from the peoples, I'll assemble you from the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel." Continuing verse 18, and they will go from there and they will take away all its detestable things and, <clears throat> and all its abominations from there. Think about that. Think about that. So here, those people there in Ezekiel's time, those people who are there in Babylon, and they're hearing this prophesied, and they're thinking, well, yes, we, we've heard the prophecy. We're, we are coming back in 70 years' time, those of us who are still living. We're going to come back to our inheritance. So they see all that's going on with Jerusalem and all that those people are doing and, and the prophecies of what's going to happen to those folks, and yet they're told here that they're going to get to come back to the land. Uh, so they did come back. They did come back in 515 and 516. And, and as we see down through the ages, we see the Jews, the southern kingdom that, that was restored. They come back, came back. What happened to all these others that were there in Jerusalem? What happened? Uh, and, and, then, and then then play that forward. Let's play that forward to to the, the mindset of, of those after the Holocaust, in, uh, after World War II. Uh, a homeland has been established for them, a, a great time of rejoicing. They've been, the Jews have been scattered everywhere. They've been, uh, they've sought, been sought to be annihilated by Hitler and, and his, and his uh, minions. And, and here they are, they're restored and they're able to come back to the land. What a, what a huge, amazing thing for them to be able to come back uh, at that time. But, but notice what it says in verse 19. Yes, they did come back 70 years later, but this, this is, this is the difference that God's, God's people know. This is the difference. This is, these are the insights that God has given us, the weak of the world, to, to understand what's really going on here. So he says, I, then I will go there. They will go there and, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. And then I will give them one heart. And I will put a new spirit within them and I'll take the stony heart out of their flesh and I'll give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts followed the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. And then the carabim lifts with its wings, uh, with the wheels, uh, lifts up, and the glory of the Lord uh, was high above them. We, we understand when we read that. What, to what is that referring? 
Is that referring coming back in 515, 516 BC? Is that, is that referring to when the Jews were able to come back to the land, uh, to have a, a heart of, of flesh, the stony heart taken out, to, uh, to walk in God's statutes and, and be their people, uh, be, be his people and, and, and he be their God? It's millennial, isn't it? It's millennial. I, I don't, I don't believe that the people of that day understood the depth of what, of what Ezekiel was saying. I don't believe the people of today's, uh, societies out there that read the scripture understand the depth of, of what's actually being said here. God, God has given us that understanding. Well, yes, the captives came back 70 years later. And where are you? Uh, you know, uh, you're all dead because you rebelled against Babylon. Yeah, Jerusalem, they're, they're out here and, and, and that's, that's not good for them. But it's the, the time frame that it's discussing actually matches up perfectly with Jeremiah 31 and, in that, you know, putting the, the, the new heart in them. It's, it's, it mirrors, uh, what, what Jeremiah has said. Let's go back to Jeremiah then and let's look at the, uh, the title of the message of why I came up with the title of this message. Let's read this story of what Jeremiah prophesies. And this is where it gets to where scholars sometimes see this difference, this contradiction. Jeremiah is saying the remnant is this, and Ezekiel is saying the remnant is, is this over here. God's people understand what's being talked about in, in both of these situations. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32, verse 1. We're going to read through this uh, to, to get to the depth of it. Jeremiah 32, verse 1. So the word that came to Jeremiah from the eternal in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, so he's there, uh, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. And for then, of course, we've got uh, captives, a large group over in Babylon at this time. And here here Jeremiah is in Jerusalem uh, with Zedekiah as king and the armies uh, as verse 2 says for for then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem besieged Jerusalem and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison which was in the king of Judah's house so Jeremiah is in a bad state they're they're sieged there's a complete siege around the whole city and and Jeremiah is in prison at the king's house uh there in in the court of the king's house. Okay, verse verse three. For Zedekiah the king of Judah had shut him up, had shut shut up uh, Jer, uh, Jeremiah, uh, saying, "Why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord? Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and and he shall take it." Zedek, and Zedekiah the king of Judah. Why are you saying this, Jeremiah? That the Zedekiah the king of Judah shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. As we know, he saw him eye to eye, and his, he saw his children uh, killed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar in front of his eyes before he lost his vision uh, due to a very brutal situation. And why do you say that though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed? Jeremiah said to him, uh, no, no, Jeremiah didn't say to him, and Jeremiah said, the word of the eternal came to me saying, behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle will come to you saying, buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. So 
going down through the, the inheritance. Uh, Jeremiah, it was Jeremiah's time to where he could buy this field. Uh, does that seem a bit peculiar to you that he would say that then? Then Han- Hanamel, uh, so this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah saying this. Well, so then look, look what happens in verse 8. So then Han- Hanamel, my, my uncle's son, came to me. He came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord, just as the Eternal had said. And he said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. He said, well, when I saw that, then I knew it was from the Lord. God had said it would happen. And then here comes my uncle out of nowhere uh, and and says it, he, he would like me to buy this. So verse 9, he says, I bought I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver, signed the deed, took witnesses, weighed the money on the scales. I took the purchase deed, both which was sealed according to law and custom and that which was open. I, I gave the purchase deed to Baruch. Uh, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. So I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed from this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Jeremiah prays for understanding. He had just done all this, and he he talks about how God is great. God can do signs and wonders, uh, all all of these kinds of things. And and then let's come down to uh, uh, verse 23. So he said they came and took possession of it, but they've not obeyed, talking about Israel coming into the land, but they've not obeyed your voice or walked in all your law. They've done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, God, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Look, the siege mounds, God, they're, they're all around us. They've come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. Uh, what? What you have spoken has happened. Uh, what you said would happen, happened. There, there, God, you see it. Verse 25, he says, And you have said to me, God, in all that you said to me, uh, buy the field for money and take witnesses? God, look around. Yet the city has been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Not only that, I'm in prison. I'm in prison, and we've got the, the Chaldeans that are pushing in on us, and you're having me buy a field. I, I, I don't understand this. You know all things. Why did he have him buy that field? We referenced it briefly, but we'll get to that here in just a bit. Let's go back to Ezekiel 17 now. Ezekiel 17. This brings us to one of the, the precious truths God has given his people, the weak of the world, one that's... Uh, I, I checked just to make sure I, I had it. I had it right. Uh, I checked to make sure in the United States, the Britain and Commonwealth in, in prophecy today. It's actually uh, it's covered on pages uh, 36 through 43. Uh, this these uh, some of what we're going to read next. Ezekiel uh, prophesied uh, about about them coming back. Uh, 
to the land and, and they did come back. And Ezekiel also prophesied about the millennial coming back of the land. What, uh, let's go back now to Ezekiel 17 and, and look at this prophecy. It's an interesting prophecy that's, as I mentioned, is covered in the U.S., Britain, and Commonwealth. Ezekiel 17. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. And say, thus says the Lord God. This is all described on on the imagery here, starting in verse 11. But let's go to verse 3. And say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with large wings and long pinions, full of feathers and of various colors, came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to a land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. Then he took some of the seed on the land and planted it in a fertile field. He he placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree, and it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots uh, were under it, so it became a vine, brought forth branches, and put forth shoots." Verse 7, then there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers, and behold, this vine bent its roots towards him and stretched its branches toward him from the garden terrace where it had been planted, that he might water it, that he might water it. It was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic vine. Verse 9, say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All of its spring leaves will wither, and, and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it's planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. So verse 11, the interpretation, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, say now to this rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them. Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and its princes and led them off off to Babylon. He took the king's officers and made a covenant with him. He put him under oath. He took away the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be brought low and and not lift itself up, but, but that by keeping his covenant, it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt. So the, the, the great eagle at the beginning is Babylon. The, the great eagle, another great eagle in verse seven is Egypt. So he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. Will, will he prosper? Will he who does such a thing escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised on, and whose covenant he broke with him and in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap a siege mound and, and build wall to cut off many persons since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, gave his hand and, and, and still did all these things. He shall not escape.
We'll read to verse 21. There, uh, therefore, thus says the Lord, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. I'm going to spread my net over him. He shall be taken in my snare. I'll bring him to Babylon, try him there for the treason which he committed against me. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I, the eternal, have spoken. He's saying that this will will take place. It looks as though everyone in Jerusalem is taken out, uh, taken out, and and yet there is something else that's going on here. Look at verse twenty-two. Uh, the the eagle plucked uh, the one away, but now we see in verse twenty-two something happening. Verse twenty-two of chapter seventeen. Thus says the Lord God, I I will take also one of the highest branches on the high cedar and set it out. I'll crop off from, from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the eternal, have spoken and have done it. Those of you that have studied the U.S. and, and, and Britain and Commonwealth in prophecy know this uh, to be uh, a, a reference of, of taking this young twig, God himself, who takes the young twig as as the descendants of, of Jehoiachin in, in Babylon would not continue to keep the throne uh, as with the scepter promise, the the descendants of Zedekiah, all the males were were killed there before the king's eyes in Babylon. This this tender twig, this young tender twig that God plucked and planted elsewhere, were the daughters of Zedekiah, with whom uh, Jeremiah kept company. That let's go over to to look at that. Uh, Jeremiah uh, forty and forty one talk about the travels of once once Jerusalem was attacked and destroyed. Uh, Jeremiah and a few others, a small remnant, a small remnant were were saved out of that. They were taken uh, by Gedaliah, who was a representative of of Babylon, uh, until he threw. Uh, Deceit was was tricked and he was slain. Uh, so then they're taken captive by I think it was Ismael. It's an interesting story if you'd like to read that again in in Jeremiah 40, uh, 40 and forty one. This insurrection that that takes place with Ishmael, uh, verse 10 of chapter 41. Then Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mitzpah. This is the folks that were with with. Jeremiah, the king's daughters. So there is a line. There is a scepter line. There is a, a, a Judah scepter line that is still in existence here. He, he took them. They, they were originally with, uh, with Gedaliah until, uh, they, they were captured. And then this, this fella takes them and all the people who remained, uh, and, and Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Nethaniah carried them away captive and departed to go over to the Ammonites. But then Johanan uh, comes in with his forces and defeats Ishmael 
And then we start to see this, this thread of events that take place. Look at verse 16. Then Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the captains of the forces that were with him, Jeremiah 41, 16, took from Mitzvah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakim, the mighty men of war, and the women and the children and the eunuchs whom he had brought back from Gibeon. Look at uh, 43, verse 5, chapter 43, verse 5. 43, verse 5. Uh, but Johanna, the son of Kareah, and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah, this, this remnant, this small group of people, who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been driven, men, women, children, the king's daughters, <laughs> and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah the son of Shaphan, and look who else was there, Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch the son of Neriah. So they went to the land of Egypt. Now, Jeremiah had warned against that, said God didn't want them to go there, but they went there. They went as far as Toppenes. So then we see Jeremiah 44, 14. Jeremiah 44, verse 14. Starting in verse 13, For I'll punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt. Well, that includes the king daughter, king's daughters. That in, includes Jeremiah. That includes all of those. So what's he saying here? So, continuing, so, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to dwell there shall escape or survive, lest they return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return and dwell. But notice this last statement. For none shall re return except those who escape. There was a small number of those who escaped and survived. Jeremiah 44, verse 28. Jeremiah 44, verse 28. Yet a small number who escaped the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, and all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there, you shall, you, uh, shall know whose words will stand, mine or theirs. So there was a, a, a small group, a small group that, that survived that. Let's go to one other passage, Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37, verse 31 that's in this thread. Isaiah prophesies this. It's, it's one that we have, we have felt as a prophecy tied to this escape of Jeremiah and the daughters of Zedekiah, the, the, the scepter line, the Judah scepter line that was promised all the way back in Genesis 48 and 49 of, of, of the scepter line uh, ruling, uh, sitting on the throne of David until Shiloh comes. Uh, verse Verse 31, Isaiah 37, and the remnant who have escaped the house of Judah shall again take root downward and, and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, those who escape from Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Think about that. So we've got... We've got on the one hand, there is this remnant. There is this remnant, not, not the remnant that is there in Babylon that comes back, uh, to the land 70 years later. Uh, that is one of the remnants that came back, but there's also this other remnant, uh, to whom or, or with whom Jeremiah, uh, was, was, was caring and, and helping, uh, from that, from that position. 
We understand through extra biblical sources, we see where there, there is evidence of, of this migration or this move up to the British Isles. Uh, the, the daughter, Tia Tefi, and, and that line continuing where many of, of those of Israel had, had been deported and migrated up to that area, uh, by that time. So here we have now a, a daughter of Zedekiah of the line of of Judah, the scepter line ruling over Israel in in that place, this remnant that survives to do that are are jeremiah and and Ezekiel talking across lines are they are they are they contradicting each other on who the remnant is god 's people understand that we understand that we get we get the picture of that let 's go back now to jeremiah twenty nine we, we left a part out there. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah was, was speaking the same, uh, we speak of the same language. He was speaking the same language, in a sense, as, as Ezekiel in terms of, of the prophecies. Uh, remember what we read there in, in verse 10. Let's, let's look at that again. For thus, uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 10, for thus, says the, the eternal, after seven, 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. I, I have these thoughts, very positive thoughts. Now, now look upon, look, look at verse 12. Let's look at verses 12, uh, through 14. Verses 12 through 14. Is this speaking specifically to to the captives who are in Babylon who are going to come back to Jerusalem after the 70-year period. Is, is he speaking specifically about that? I submit to you that maybe as a type, but as, as a type of, of the reality that is coming that, that you and I both know and understand deeply. Look at it here, uh, verse 12. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now, now granted, they did come back to the land and, and during the time of, of, uh, the, the Persian captivity and such, there were, there were revivals where they, they, you know, you look at some of the, the stories there of, of, uh, Haggai, of, of building, rebuilding things with, with, uh, to, to the best of their ability. We, we see some of that, but, we also see the millennial millennial reference here to this. Uh, I will be found by you, uh, verse, four, uh, verse 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Uh, it, it, it's a heart matter. And this searching for me with, with all your heart is a reference to... Ultimately, we can't search for God with all our hearts unless God initiates that call unless he initiates that desire to even turn to him with all our hearts with all our soul and with all our being that it is a spirit driven kind of activity here this this i think as i look at this the, the finality of this is speaking to the bigger picture it's, it's speaking to the millennium and i will be found by you verse 14 says the eternal i will bring you back from your captivity i will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place 
which I cause, uh, from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Uh, is that just the reference of, of, of 515 BC? Is that a reference to what happened after World War II? Is, is, is it, is it that? Or is this more the kind of language which is talking about the ultimate fulfillment of God gathering the people in from all the lands around the world, bringing them back as he does after Christ's return as the millennium is established? The nation of Israel today, where's the kingly line? Where's the kingly line? What about all Israel returning from the coasts and the isles to their homeland? Did that happen 70, 70 years after 515, uh, at, at 515 BC? Did that happen uh, when they were given back a portion of the land there in World War II? Are the Jews dwelling in peace in their land now? Uh, are, are their hearts turned to God? Are the laws written on their hearts? Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah 32 verse 37. Our final passage, Jeremiah 32, verse 7. Why did Jeremiah buy that field? Uh, why did God have him buy that field? To, to, so that it could, in a sense, contradict Ezekiel's prophecy of those coming back from the, the captivity, or that, that actually there were going to be some from Jerusalem there that get back in the land then? Is it some kind of a conflict? It, it's not a conflict at all. It, it's, it's something completely different about which he's discussing. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32, verse 37, as we pick up the story on this, this piece of land that he had him purchase. Jeremiah 32, verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries, of all countries where I have driven them in my anger and my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. <laughs> that has not happened. They are not dwelling safely now. It's millennial. This this passage about buying the field is millennial. It's it's to help us understand of what's going to happen when Christ returns and sets up His throne. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I'm going to give give them one heart. I'm going to give them one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I'll make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I'll put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, he says, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Eternal, just as I have brought this great calamity on the people, so I will bring on them all the good that I've promised them. And fields, you know, in, 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 the, in the time in the future, he says here, continuing with the imagery, fields will be bought in this land of which you say, look around, it's desolate. Without man or beast, it's been given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Fields will be bought. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, and in the places around uh, Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. He's millenn It's millennium. He's talking about millennium. We have been so blessed to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God, to grasp the, the, the identity of Israel, to, to 
grasp the scepter promise, to, to grasp the return of Jesus Christ, to grasp the seed, the seed through which all the nations will be blessed as he reigns in Jerusalem. That he begins to say, here's Assyria, my people. Here's Egypt, my people. He works through Israel to cause all of that, to bring uh, all of the nations uh, to him, to bless all nations ultimately, bringing them into his family as he reigns in, in, in his kingdom, in, in, with, with his government, with his knowledge, with his mercy, with his justice, with the love that will spread throughout the world. We can see the unity of the messages of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We can keep perspective of what we see going around all around us in the world, this craziness, the, the complexity, the, all of the, the, the different jockeying for power among the nations that's going on, the alliances here, the compromises here, the lesser of two evils. We've just finished keeping four holy days in the fall festival season that help us realize as citizens of that coming kingdom that God's got this. He's got this. He's, he's got this completely in control. We finish keeping these four holy days. We realize that as citizens of the kingdom of God, that God is there for us. God is there for all of mankind. And as a result, we as God's people, we can prioritize what's truly important in our lives. God's plan will be fulfilled, as discussed in the sermonette, as Mr. Mr. Bennett said. So we focus on what we know we should be doing. Are we a light reflecting the true light? Are we a servant found so doing when the master arrives? Are we loving God with all our strength and mind? Are we loving our neighbor as ourselves? Are we seeking his kingdom and his righteousness? Are you and I, or in all the fray of the craziness that's going around us, are we allowing ourselves to get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine? Are we allowing ourselves to get caught up in the fray of the political arena in which the world finds itself? May it not be so with us. May we not lose heart while the world increases in confusion. Instead, in the midst of all this confusion and chaos that will increase, it will increase in the coming months of years, months and years, may we be about the business of purchasing a field of true value. May thy kingdom come.